podcast. If you think about it astronomically, we're pretty much on time. With Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu, Samuel Lest, Michael Wright, Tian Bazide now, Mariam Rashid, Alice Humpage, and Alex Clark. The Jodcast, October 2019 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Michael Wright. Joining me in the studio, Tian Bazide Knight, Mariam Rashid. In the show this time, Alex Clark interviews Sadie Jones, Ian Morrison, Haratina Mogasanu and Samuel Lesk take a look at what's happening in the October night sky. But before all of that, here's Alice Humpage with this month's news. In the news this month, an unexpectedly large planet around a small star, a visitor from outside the solar system, a lost lunar lander, and water in the atmosphere of a super-Earth. First, a large planet has been found orbiting a small star. GJ3512b is a gas giant with a mass at least half of that of Jupiter, but potentially much bigger. What's interesting about this planet is that it is orbiting a red dwarf. Current theories about planet formation don't expect this to be possible, as they predict that there wouldn't have been enough material around the red dwarf earlier in its life to form planets as large as this one. This means that theories have to be re-examined in order to explain this strange planet. Next, a new interstellar visitor has been discovered in the solar system. The comet, named Borisov, is only the second comet found to have come from outside of our solar system. The first was the cigar-shaped Oumuamua, discovered in October 2017. Many interstellar objects are thought to come through our solar system within the orbit of the Earth, and even more reach Neptune, but they are very hard to spot. The comet is likely to stick around for a year, and will be closest to the Sun in December. As it gets closer, the comet will provide fascinating insights into the conditions outside of our solar system. In some less good news, India is still trying to connect to its lost lunar lander. The Vikram lander, part of the Chandrayaan-2 mission, was meant to reach the South Pole of the Moon on the 6th of September after launching in late July. Contact was lost only a couple of kilometres from its destination and still hasn't been made. ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organisation, has already successfully launched a lunar orbiter as part of this mission, and though the Vikram would have only been in operation for two weeks, the mission's triumph would have made India only the fourth country to achieve a soft landing on a body outside the Earth. The organisation says the orbiter has found the lander near to where it was expected to be, though images have yet to be released. Finally, astronomers have found water in the atmosphere of a super-Earth for the first time. K218b is eight times the mass of the Earth and is orbiting a red dwarf star. The planet lies in the habitable zone of its star, which for this system is a quarter of the way closer than the Earth is to our sun. Crude estimates of the temperature of the planet put it between minus 73 and 47 degrees Celsius, though this depends on the surface and atmosphere of the planet. The study found water vapour in the atmosphere, and the discovery is an excellent look into the atmospheres of planets which may have the potential to support life. Though the extent of the water is unknown due to technological limitations, the next generation of space telescopes will allow us to find out how much water vapour surrounds this planet. Thanks for that, Alison Pitch. Now, Alex Clark interviews Sadie Jones about her outreach work at the University of Southampton. Hello, today I'm here with welcoming Dr. Sadie Jones. Hi, Sadie. Hi, Alex. <laughs> How's it going, Sadie? 
yeah, going very well. Had a good trip up on the on the plane. Cool. You're from Southampton, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I'm not from Southampton. Not from Southampton. <laughs> Sorry, I, I know Sadie from when I was at Southampton. Yeah. But the Welsh in me wouldn't let me say that I was from Southampton. Yeah, hopefully the <laughs> listeners pick that up. Because <laughs> you're originally from Wales. But I work at the University of Southampton. Working in Southampton. And have for a long time. <laughs> cool. So you've come up to give a seminar. Yes. Um, here at Manchester. Um, do you want to start by giving the listeners a little bit uh, overview on your background um, and how you got into your current job as an astronomer? Okay. Uh, yes. So, well, I didn't actually start out as a kid wanting to be an astronomer. I wanted to be like an interior designer or something to do with computers and art because I was very creative um but I had very good physics and maths teachers at a level and very terrible teachers (laughs) of computer and art um and I realized that there was actually loads of job options for physics and I didn't really know what I wanted to do um but I knew that physics wouldn't close any doors so I wasn't the type of astronomer who was looking through telescopes as a kid or anything like that. I uh, just like enjoyed physics and maths. And then, yeah, so then I did a work experience in Cardiff University. And that actually came about because my dad was goes swimming regularly and he met someone who he assumed, wrongly, was a farmer because of their <laughs> West Country accent. <laughs> And they turned out to be a professor of astrophysics in Cardiff University. So they set me up on a work experience for, I just did a week, um, but I absolutely loved it. So from then on, I was pretty sure I wanted to do astronomy. I actually had Manchester as my first choice on my UCAS form. I really wanted to come here because I love the city um, and the people and the department. Um, But at the last minute, I think because I'd had that work experience in Cardiff and it's close to my home in the valley so I could still take my laundry home mm-hmm. and my yeah. have nice Sunday dinners um, at the last minute I did change to, to go to Cardiff so I did the MPhys in astrophysics uh, there and then um, a PhD place came through in Southampton yeah. and again to be honest I was going to stay in Cardiff to stay in Wales <laughs> yeah. um, but the, the funding fell through for the PhD that I was going to do so, uh, yeah, so I took on a PhD in Southampton, uh, which was in something totally different to what my master's project was on. So it was a bit brave. And it was in radio astronomy, which is all the rage now. But at yeah. the time, there wasn't really anyone doing it. So I did you struggle. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I didn't feel up and coming. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I did the dark art of radio astronomy yeah. for four years in Southampton. Yeah. And then luckily for me, uh, because I wasn't, potentially enjoying the research so much like I didn't see my future in in a postdoc or whatever Um, they bought the planetarium which was just going to be used for open days it's like an inflatable astrodome we call it yeah and yeah uh, they bought that and they kind of got some funding to create the job I actually do in astronomy um, and I got that job and that's what I've been doing since 2011 yeah so So that's roughly when I I think I met you in 2013 when I started my PhD at Southampton University and I remember going to lots of planetarium uh, shows with you in schools and uh, take the dome out to various events give people tours of the night sky yeah Yeah. it's a great laugh and like we used to do a lot more outreach I guess than we do now um, but we used to have a lot more funding I guess that's right. the problem with everything yeah. but um, 
yeah, like we used to go like, well, as you know, because you were one of my yeah one of my team. Um, we used to do like forty to fifty school visits a year, um, and now it's probably more like twenty. But we do lots of the local schools who are more, I guess, considered, um, well, they need more help with their physics kind of engagement yeah. and that kind of yeah. thing. So I guess the um, uh, uh, question is, what do you think, um, do you think it's important, obviously we think it's important that, that we have, do this outreach in schools, but from your perspective of going to these schools a lot of the time, what feedback do you see them giving? Do they really um, see the impact of, taking astronomy outreach to the schools i mean I, well obviously i believe in it because it's my job <laughs> if i didn't believe yeah. in it i'd be in trouble but um yeah i mean i think it, especially with the planetarium it's something so different to the environment they're used to in the classroom yeah um so i feel like you know <laughs> we wouldn't necessarily have to show them astrophysics obviously everyone mm. well most people like space and are interested by it mm. but just having the experience of going into this inflatable igloo yeah uh, especially for the little ones is yeah. just really cool and i think a lot of the reason why I think it's so important is because all the people I take with with me are people like yourself. Like they are active scientists in yeah. who are doing research. So even though I don't do any research anymore myself, they're speaking to scientists and they're seeing that they're you know normal people. Yeah, you can't yeah. see me doing air yeah. quotes, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> yes, I think that role. I know there is some research which says maybe role models don't really work and that people that the kids okay. just kind of think you know good for you you have this great uh career but what does that mean for my my future mm -hmm. but i know from my own experiences like i've had you know female role models quite a lot of them growing up and like female teachers of physics and stuff so i feel like that has had an influence on me because if i hadn't yeah. had that then you know i wouldn't i wouldn't have been able to see myself doing what i do now so yeah it's important, I think. I think one of, one of the things I remember from doing these shows with you is, is a lot of um, the kids have have literally never seen the night sky. In, in no, <laughs> if you're in a busy city, all you see is maybe the moon and like three or four stars. Yeah. But when you go into the planetarium and you see the actual night sky, yeah, a lot of these kids have literally never seen that, and, and yeah, it and starts I... with just a picture, and then obviously from that picture there comes like the questions that we get asked. The, yeah, the kids are, are just yeah, and I, yeah, and I think the planetarium is you know if you can't go out and look at the night sky for whatever reason, I mean hopefully afterwards they do actually go and have yeah. a look up or at least try and go somewhere dark. Yeah, but I think you take for granted now we've got like iPads and everything like mm. you know we, I've got this app on my iPad where I can see all these stars, so why would I bother looking up or looking with my eyes? But it is so different and it is like really special. Like again, I shouldn't probably admit to this, but. I teach on the Tenerife field trip and it probably wasn't till that trip so after my PhD where I actually looked through you know like a 10 inch telescope at Jupiter yeah. and there is something so awesome about seeing that with your actual like eyeball yeah. and it does look like the pictures and the Hubble pictures or whatever like yeah, they're yeah, way yeah. better resolution but when there is something special about seeing it yeah. and like hopefully we encourage people to do that with the yeah. planetarium yeah I mean, hopefully they also learn the science and get excited yes. about it. Yeah. But I, yeah. if they just go out and look up and like, kind of start to question the universe, I think that's the main, yeah. that's the main thing that makes you want to be a scientist. Yeah. Like, I think I annoyed my parents a lot as a kid, just being like, "Why does the moon look like it's following me?" <laughs> like, it, like all those kind of weird questions. And when you realise your parents can't answer them anymore, yeah, it's like it's a bit yeah. hard work. <laughs> You've got to answer them. Yeah. 
we need you, (laughs) children of tomorrow. Um, So you're here to give a seminar here today. Do you want to give the listeners a quick uh, brief overview of what you're going to be talking about? Uh, Yes, so I'm talking today about uh, all the kind of work we've done working with different types of like public, different audiences uh, with a specific aim to um, engage in them with our supernova and dark energy research that we do uh, at the University of Southampton. Um, So we've got, well, we've got quite a few projects. Uh, I'm going to talk about four today. So hopefully I get to go through them all. (laughs) But there's, we did one in the Southampton airport in the departure lounge where we we're talking about supernova and exploding stars and death which was cool because you don't normally get to talk about those things in airports in an airport yeah. <laughs> um and then the other project is um the seti cipher challenge um which is like an online forum where kids interact with scientists um and again we did one of the years dedicated to supernova uh, research um, and then the other project is kind of a new project called uh, Sot and Astro Art, which came about accidentally because we had all these photographic plates uh, at the university that were a health and safety uh, hazard in the filing cabinets where they were. <laughs> they were going to be thrown in the bin and they are um, like a relic of, you know, past astronomy before we had the internet type of thing. So it would have been a shame to throw them in. So we saved them and we've given them to artists and they've made some really cool stuff. Um, and we've now linked that project to uh, our dark energy survey research. Awesome, awesome. So what are you up to at the moment then with your, you know, with your time? Yeah, so at the moment I'm actually helping uh, astronomers in the solar environment physics group. Hopefully I got that right. <laughs> uh, and they have a Zooniverse project, so a new citizen science project called Aurora Zoo. Uh, I think if you Google auroraZoo.org, you'll find it. And it's uh, we have um, images of the aurora from uh, Svalbard in Norway. And um, we need the public to help us uh, classify the different shapes of the aurora. So they have really cool names like Chocolate Sauce. Um, and other things. There's a, there's a tutorial online which will help you uh, understand more about this. But basically, uh, humans can do this kind of thing uh, a lot better than computers. So mm. we need your help with our analysing our data, and then that will help us understand the the magnetic field strength, basically. So, yeah, please help us. Awesome. Cool. Well, we'll wrap it up there, because you're literally about to go and give your <laughs> seminar in, in five or ten minutes' time. So thank you very much for joining us on Jodcast City. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for that, Alex. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits that can't fit anywhere else, the odds and ends. So there's an interesting thing that turned up in nature that I just wanted to talk about quickly. Measuring X-rays with like space telescopes is very difficult because unlike an optical telescope, if an X-ray hits this sort of reflecting surface, it's more likely to get absorbed or just transmit straight through than be reflected off. So the way we've done X-ray telescopes sort of now and in the past has been to use what's called a Walter-type system. And it's basically a set of mirrors with very light angles of grazing. These sort of very light angles mean that you do get some reflection and very gradually pull your light around to your optical focus, which is fine, but the grazing angle decreases as you raise your energy. 
And what that means is as you start getting higher and higher energy X-rays, or as you want to start searching for these, you need to make your telescope longer and longer and longer. And it starts to become impractical to put this thing in space. So, there's been a recent article published called A Stacked Prism Lens Concept for Next Generation Hard X-Ray Telescopes. Basically, the idea is that we solve this, rather than having your array of slightly grazing mirrors, you have sort of multiple layers of prisms stacked up, which each make a very slight refraction, and that brings you to your focal length. So this group of scientists have basically made a prototype of this idea of a stacked prism lens, and they've, they've been sort of playing around with it. They've done a lab test where they have x-rays shining at it and receiving them at a focus. So they had this light source using x-rays of 13.5 kilo electron volts, which to give you a sort of idea, the sort of x-ray telescopes that are going into space at the moment are generally searching for x-rays of less than 10 kV. And they were testing this, and they were getting this thing to work with a focal length of less than a metre, and working reasonably well. So that's interesting, but it's also interesting that they found a reasonable way to build it that should scale up. Because it's a stacked array of prisms, they're making it out of layers and layers of disks. The way they can make it, then, is to make thin disks using lithography. So basically you can put a mask over this layer of material that they're using and selectively remove the bits that aren't covered by the mask. And they've managed to get that working reasonably, and this obviously means it's fairly scalable up. Once you've created your masks, you can make batches of these and sort of stack them together to make a much larger telescope with lots of these sets of prisms and lenses. That was quite an interesting thing, and it might be something that we want to use in space in the future. So you mentioned that this was a prototype. Is there any plans for it to be you know, introduced in practice? There's no mission plan to use it yet. But since they've got a physical working model, and also they've got simulations of it, they're trying to play it about within that way, they're fairly ready if someone comes along wanting a next-generation X-ray telescope. Yeah, so I'm not that familiar with X-ray telescopes. What would be kind of the advantages of this over, say, Chandra? It's more the energy of the X-rays you can practically observe with this. So, as I said about X-ray telescopes, the length you need to focus increasing with the frequency of your X-rays. And this becomes a problem. If you start using something like this, you might be able to observe X-rays at higher frequencies, therefore higher energies, because than you can with the stuff that's currently in space. And if you're observing X-rays at higher frequencies, of course, you're expanding the range of frequencies you can look at, and this might start teaching you new physics. You might find something interesting there that you would never have found if you hadn't expanded that range you're looking at. So yeah, so that's kind of why this might be useful. Did you mention how expensive is it? No, unfortunately papers <laughs> don't tend to put in how expensive their project is going to be. UV lithography, which is what they're using, is a fairly sort of well-known technique. It's the thing you use to make printed circuit boards, for example. 
So while they're probably doing a very fine processed example of that, because it's using well-established technology to make this, and because they're trying to make this in a way that will be built in parts, I don't think it's going to be expensive in comparison to the fact that you're already sending an advanced X-ray telescope to space. It's not going to be sort of, this suddenly doubles the cost or anything. It's going to be, this is probably comparable in price to what we're doing at the moment. Next up, Tian, what have you got for us? All right, so as a member of the Pulsar delegation at Children's Bank, I thought that I would give some news from the world of Pulsars. Since pulsars are some of the most extreme systems in the universe, there are a number of ways that they can be looked at to understand the physics that are involved. So you can try to understand how they formed, how they emit light, or how they change over time. And one of the more tricky bits of science that you can do with them is that you can try to derive the equation of state, which is an equation that tells you how the pressure inside the star relates to its density. So it's connected to the structure of the star and to the properties of the material that uh, it consists of. Now, finding the, the neutron star equation of state would tell us a lot about how matter behaves under extreme pressures, such as those found in the cores of neutron stars. And it's a possible avenue for detecting the existence of certain as yet hypothetical exotic particles. One of the key pieces to the equation of state is the pulsar's mass. So determining that is very important. It's one of the most active fields of research in pulsar astronomy at the moment. So for a very special subset of pulsars called millisecond pulsars, their mass can be quite accurately determined by measuring a Shapiro delay. A signal acquires a Shapiro delay if it travels along space-time that is curved by the presence of a large mass. Millisecond pulsars are often a binary system with another star, and if that star at some point in its orbit gets in between the pulsar's beam of light and the Earth, general relativity tells us that it bends the space-time that the beam travels through, making it travel along a very slightly longer path to the Earth, and to arrive slightly later on the order of a couple of microseconds. So the trick is to time very precisely the regular arrival of the pulses from the pulsar, and then to measure the slight Shapiro delay when the binary companion gets in front of the pulsar, and then to do some maths to figure out the mass of both the millisecond pulsar and its companion. I should mention that uh, measuring the Shapiro delay is one of the most watertight proofs that we have for the general theory of relativity. Now, on the 16th of September, a paper was published in the journal Nature that uses data from the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia to time a millisecond pulsar called J0740 plus 6620, which has a white dwarf binary companion, and to measure the Shapiro delay. So they came up with a number for the pulsar's mass of 2.14 solar masses, which is the heaviest ever measured for a neutron star. Neutron stars typically weigh only around 1.4 solar masses, and it's thought that much heavier than that, and it would collapse down to a black hole. Um, in fact, the LIGO detection of the double neutron star merger suggested that the upper limit on neutron star mass is about 2.17 solar masses. So this pulsar is right on the edge of what we think is possible, which, if you're a theorist, is great because it allows you to rule out some possible models. For example, non-nucleonic solutions of the equation of state, that is, those that incorporate exotic matter like 
those Einstein condensates or even hypothetical stuff like quark matter or hyperons predict a softer, more compressible neutron star, that would mean that you can't pack as much mass into the neutron star without it collapsing, making the existence of a pulsar like this one impossible. This more or less rules out a lot of the more exotic proposals for what pulsars are made of, which I find personally slightly disappointing really. There's also some interesting implications for pulsar evolution. It's commonly thought that pulsars are born at more or less the same mass and a gain weight by stealing material from a binary companion. But since more and more really heavy neutron stars are being discovered, it's being suggested that neutron stars can have a relatively wide range of masses at birth, which again has implications for how we can understand supernovae and how they produce neutron stars. So I just want to share that. I think it's a pretty interesting example of how theory and, and observations interact. Okay, the first thing I want to ask is you say you're measuring this Vero delay, this time delay. How do you work out that it's that that's causing the delay? Because there could be other things in the pulsar that make its pulses slightly different times. Yeah, so they have very precise predictions for how exactly general relativity would affect the time of arrival of pulses, including Shapiro delay. So they can subtract the effect of Shapiro delay from their timing model. And if you remove how that it would affect your times of arrival, then it matches exactly what you would expect to see from theory. So from that, they conclude that that delay is probably as a result of Shapiro delay. So the other thing I wanted to prod you on is you've got this neutron stars with a typical mass that you said, but you're also now saying that we're finding more and more of these heavy neutron stars. Is there a chance you think that we're going to be finding that this typical mass may actually end up being an underestimate? Or have we sort of seen enough pulsars that actually this is not changing their idea of what's typical that much? Yeah, so it definitely seems like the, the canonical mass for a pulsar is 1.4 solar masses, the, kind of the most common one that you would expect, the platonic ideal of a pulsar to have. It does seem like that is an underestimate. So that comes from the Chandrasekhar limit, which means that any higher than that and the star would have collapsed down to a black hole instead. So, you know, there's a lot of maths going into that number, but it does seem to be observation is saying that it's perhaps slightly lower. What have you got for us today, Mary? Oh, so to round off, I have something slightly less technical to talk about. Um, so I was recently at a talk by someone who's working on the JUICE mission, so Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. Um, it's due to launch in 2022, so quite far off. And it's going to be looking at Ganymede, Callisto and Europa. So the thing I thought was quite interesting was they're just planning to crash land this entire massive project onto Ganymede at the minute. Another similar mission actually had to cancel their plan to crash land because they decided that the structure of the moon they were studying might not like withstand it. So <laughs> yeah, the I was moon just thinking. Might not withstand it. I think so. I think the the thought process was they might damage like future expeditions there if they're gonna crash. I think that's what it was. I can't recall. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's so, less impressive than I was thinking. I was thinking they're just gonna fire into the moon, <laughs> explode. <laughs> not no. quite. Not quite. Um, oh, yeah, boom. I don't quite remember the specifics of it, but it was along the lines of it wouldn't be responsible of them to crash this satellite there. But anyway, 
So let's discuss what we can see in this month's night sky, firstly with Ian Morrison. The night sky for October 2019. Well, of course, well, as the evenings are drawing in, we don't have to stay up quite so late to observe the heavens. And there's more that we can see too in the longer hours. Sometime after sunset, looking high towards the west, we can see what is still the summer triangle, even though it's autumn. The bright stars Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lara, and Altair in Aquila, making up what's called the summer triangle. Moving over towards the south, not quite so bright stars, we have in fact the great square of Pegasus, the upside-down winged horse. The top left-hand star of the square of Pegasus is actually called Alpharat, which is actually Alpha Andromedae, and it starts a possible way to find M31, the Andromeda galaxy. Just move one brightish star to its left, round a little bit to the right to a rather brighter star, which is actually Beta Andromedae, then go 90 degrees right, past one relatively bright star, and the same distance again. You may, even with your unaided eye on a really dark night, see a fuzzy patch. It'll be very obvious in binoculars. And that, of course, is M31, the Andromeda galaxy, the nearest giant galaxy to us. The nice thing about observing it is that when you see it, the photons that your eye is perceiving left there two and a half million years ago. You're looking back into time. High above the square of Pegasus is the W-shaped constellation of Cassiopeia. And in fact, the right-hand V of that constellation, the bright stars, also points down to Andromeda. Rising over to the east later in the evening is the constellation of Taurus the Bull, with the Hyades cluster, and up to its right, the rather lovely Pleiades cluster, beautiful in binoculars or a small telescope. Well, what about the planets? In principle, there are six major planets to observe this month. But to be honest, only one of them is much cop. Um, let's have a look at them. Jupiter, shining on the first of the month at magnitude minus two and falling just a touch as October progresses, can be seen low in the southwest as darkness falls. During the month, his angular size drops from 35.8 to 33.5 arc seconds. But lying in the southern eastern part of Ophiuchus, it's heading towards the southernmost part of the ecliptic. So as it appears in twilight, it will only have an elevation of around 10 degrees. And with its low elevation, atmospheric dispersion will take its toll. Now, in fact, Saturn, not a bad month for Saturn. It'll be seen in the south as darkness falls at the start of the month. Then its disk is 17.8 arc seconds across, and the rings, which are still at 25.2 degrees, nicely tilted to the line of sight, spanning some 41 arc seconds across. During the month, the brightness drops slightly from plus 0.5 to plus 0.6, and the angular size falls to 16 arc seconds. Again, Saturn is now in Sagittarius and lying on the southeastern side of the Milky Way. It is at the lowest point of the ecliptic and will only reach an elevation of around 14 degrees. 
Well, now Mercury. It reaches eastern elongation at an angular distance of 24.6 degrees from the Sun on the 19th of October. But sadly, as the ecliptic is at such a shallow angle to the horizon at this time of the year, its elevation of sunset, just 1.5 degrees, is so low it'll be very hard to spot, lying to the upper left of Venus. So you'll need a very low southwestern horizon and almost certainly the use of binoculars. But of course, please do not use them until after the sun has set. Now Mars, which passed behind the sun, that's called superior conjunction, on September the 2nd, returns to the pre-dawn sky at the start of its new apparition. It might just be glimpsed south of east in the latter part of the month, but will only have an elevation of about 11 degrees at sunrise by the end of the month. So again, binoculars could well be needed to spot its 1.8 magnitude, 3.7 arc second disc. But don't, of course, use them once the sun has risen. Venus, I mentioned it briefly earlier, may be glimpsed in the west-southwest some 30 minutes after sunset at the start of October. It'll be very difficult to see, just like Mercury, because angle of the ecliptic is so shallow relative to the horizon. By month's end, it sets about one after the sun, but will still be hard to spot. Its magnitude remains at about minus 3.9, and its disk, 10 arc seconds across, is almost fully lit. Binoculars and a very low horizon will be needed, but again, 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 please don't use them until the sun has set. Well, what about the highlights? As I've said, it's not a bad month to observe Saturn. It's now at a low elevation just west of south as darkness falls, lying above the teapot of Sagittarius. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, having a magnitude of 8.2. A small telescope will show you the rings, and one of 6 to 8 inches aperture, with a magnification of about times 200, with a night of good seeing, will show Saturn and its beautiful ring system in its full glory. But remember, at such low elevation, the atmosphere will have quite an effect. The thing that makes Saturn stand out is, of course, its ring system. The two outermost rings, A and B, are separated by a gap called Cassini's division, which should be visible in a telescope of four or more inches aperture. Lying within the B ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is the C or crepe ring. Due to the orientation of Saturn's rotation axis of 27 degrees with respect to the plane of the solar system, the orientation of the rings as seen by us as it orbits the Sun changes, and twice each orbit they lie edge on to us and can hardly be seen. This last happened in 2009, they're currently at an angle of about 25 degrees to the line of sight, and they will continue to narrow until about March 2025. So some things to see in the sky. They're most of the time, but probably quite good to observe in the autumn. 
I won't go through the details because they're all on the Night Sky page. Just search for Night Sky Jodrell Bank and you'll find out little star charts and some more details. But, for example, there's a nice globular cluster, M13, the best that can be seen in the Northern Hemisphere, and that's in Hercules. And also, moving over to the east in Lyra, there's a lovely pair of stars called the Double Double, which, if you use monoculars, you'll see as two stars, but with a telescope under good seeing conditions, each of those is, in fact, a pair of stars. Later in the evening, you can observe between the constellations of Cassiopeia and Perseus what is called the double cluster. Rather nice in binoculars, even better in a small telescope. And one of the stars in Perseus is called Algol, the demon star, because its brightness normally at about uh, magnitude 2.2, but every 2.86 days briefly drops to magnitude 3.4. And that's because it's an eclipsing binary. And I give two times in the month, in the evening, when you might be able to spot that happening. October is also a good month to find Uranus, because it reaches opposition on October the 28th. With a magnitude of 5.7, binoculars should easily spot it, and from a really dark site, it might even be visible to the unaided eye. A medium aperture telescope say, of 8 inches aperture, will reveal Uranus's 3.7 arc-second wide disk, perhaps showing its turquoise colour. It lies in Aries, close to the border of Pisces and Cetus. And in fact, there's a chart on the Night Sky page to show you where to look. There's another nice asterism to observe in October. It's called the Kotanger. And all you have to do is to start from the lower star of the summer triangle, Altair, and move about a third of the way up towards Vega. There's quite a dark patch of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift, and against that there's a very nice little asterism properly called Brocky's Cluster, but usually we call it the Coathanger because it looks like an upside-down Coathanger. It's a very pretty object. On October the 3rd, after sunset, Jupiter lies quite near the moon and Jupiter will be down to the lower left of a waxing crescent moon. On October the 5th, after sunset, low in the south, Saturn will be seen just up to the left of the first quarter moon. And finally, on October the 17th, in the late evening, looking southeast, the waning moon will be seen up to the left of Aldebaran, which is appearing as part of the Hyades cluster in Taurus, but in fact Aldebaran is not part of the cluster and lies much closer to us. Well, I hope you get, make the most of the darker skies we have this month. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere listeners, here's Haritina Mogusanu with Samuel Lisk with the uh, night sky where you are. Welcome to Galactic Conversations, our monthly podcast about amazing things in the night sky. We are here in Wellington, New Zealand at 41 degrees latitude south and are bringing you the night sky from down under. We have some instructions for you as to what to do with the October night sky. 
New Zealand switched to summertime, that is, we put our clocks forward one hour. We're seriously starting to think now about solar astronomy as very soon there's going to be not so many things in the sky we had all these months we had the galactic center out there spoiling us with all those amazing objects the fish hook of maui sinks towards the western horizon that's how we call scorpius in here and with it the galactic center but this is a month when you can still see many wonderful objects in the night sky the magellanic clouds are still there and especially the small Magellanic cloud is good to observe after sunset. Grus, the crane, famous constellation with double doubles, is getting close to the zenith this month. The sun is in Virgo until November the 1st and Pisces lay on the horizon at sunset. Mercury, Venus and the moon all get up close and personal just after sunset on 30th of October. Mercury and Venus will be just under 3 degrees apart and the waxing crescent moon will be just 8 degrees away from the pair of planets. Through a telescope you will see the three different phases of the different celestial bodies, with the moon being just a slither, Mercury being 35% illuminated and Venus nearly full at 94%. To achieve this configuration, Venus is on the other side of the Sun to Earth's position, with Mercury almost halfway between. Observable comets are also in the southern sky, 289P Blanpain and C 2018 W2 Africano at the Aquarius end of Pisces. So, what are we going to do this month? Let's make a plan. Make an observing plan before you go out. We usually do have one. There is a cool option in Sky Safari, which is an app we use a lot to do that. Although these days, every time we go out observing, we always carry a DSLR camera with us as well as a tripod to take wide field photographs of the night sky and whatever cameras we can get on a telescope for the deep sky. Mostly now is about astrophotography or drawing through a telescope and that's very exciting about observing. And knowing that you captured those photons that traveled for thousands of years, some even millions of, you know, even just four years when we look at the closest uh, neighbor here in the southern hemisphere alpha centauri it's an amazing thing a little bit about october as we always do say something about the month that we're in october comes from the greek octo which means eight is the eighth month in the old calendar of romulus which was around 750 bc the original calendar consisted of 10 months beginning in spring with march October retained its name after January and February were inserted into the original calendar. This calendar is believed to be created by early kings Romulus and Numa Pompilius and bears traces of its origin as an observational lunar calendar. The first day was a calenda from which the name calendar derives and it signified the start of a new lunar phase. On this day, the pontiffs, that's kind of like a Roman priest, would announce the number of days until the next month at the Curia Calabra, a temple. In addition, debtors had to pay off their debts on this day. These debts were inscribed in the Calendaria, which was effectively an accounting book. The early Romans had Calende, None and Ide, which seemed to have derived from the first sighting of the crescent moon, the first quarter moon and the full moon respectively. 
Of course, being a lunar calendar, it was out of sync with the seasons and created a lot of havoc in the Roman Empire. And it also gave birth to the expression Greek calendar, which means never. After the establishment of the Roman Republic, years began to be dated by consulships and control over intercalation was granted to the pontifice, who eventually abused their power by lengthening years controlled by their political allies and shortening the years in their rivals' terms of office. Having won his war with Pompey, Caesar used his position as Rome's chief pontiff to enact a calendar reform in 46 BC, coincidentally marking the year of his third consulship last for 446 days. So, October is now the 10th month of the year, even though its uh, original name means the 8th month of the year, and it's a beautiful month here in the Southern Hemisphere. We have springtime, and obviously in the Northern Hemisphere, people experience autumn. What's the sun up to? The reality is that the sun does not spend an equal amount of time passing through the zodiacal constellations for the simple reason that these constellations are different areas, patches in the sky. So technically, this month, the sun is in Virgo until the 1st of November when it moves into Libra and has been in Virgo since the 17th of September. Virgo is a really long constellation to transit. Let's have a look at Zenit. What's at Zenit? Beautiful Sagittarius is at Zenit just after sunset. And then as the month progresses, it's replaced by other amazing constellations such as Microscopium, which is basically a rectangle. And then one of our favorite constellations grows towards the middle of the month or later on in the evening, whichever you prefer. The cool thing about Grus, the crane, is that it has many double stars. I love it. It's almost, um, it almost looks like a curved line, like an imaginary tail of the crane that points towards the small Magellanic cloud. So that's how you can find the small Magellanic cloud. Just follow the tail of the crane in the neighboring constellation, which is another bird, the toucan. In addition to that, another favorite of mine, Fomalhaut, the star, is getting very close to Zenit this time of the year. So all you have to do is just lift up your eyes, look up, look above your head. That's where Zenit is. I love Fomalhaut because when I was in the Northern Hemisphere, before I traveled here, it was the southernmost star that I could see. And it was said to show the passage south. It actually does if you know where to look. Fomalhaut is one of the royal stars along with Antares, Regulus and Aldebaran. The royal stars were the guardians of the sky. 5,000 years ago, during the time of the ancient Persians in the area of modern-day Iran, Persians believed that the sky was divided into four districts, with each district being guarded by one of the four royal stars. Fomalhaut is part of the constellation Piscis Austrinus. Along with the other royal stars, um, they were believed to hold both good and evil powers. And the Persians looked at these stars for guidance in scientific calculations of the sky, uh, for the calendars, for lunar and solar cycles, and of course, for predictions about the future. And talking about predictions about the future... And humanity's oldest calendar, the zodiacal band that tells you what's going to come ahead, 
This is located on a very special part of the sky, which is called the ecliptic. It's that part of the sky that holds the path of the sun as we see it from here, from Earth. And other than bright planets, we always see planets on the ecliptic. It also hosts some bright stars. This time of the year, there's Zubin al Genubi and Zubin al Shamali in Libra plunging towards the western horizon. They're very close to, to the western horizon. And then red giant Antares in Scorpius and a few of the stars in Sagittarius that make the teapot. Capricornus has also some bright stars and its very characteristic shape of a golf flag make it very easy recognizable. Then this is kind of like at the end of the bright stars. We'll have to wait until very late in the night to see Taurus and Aldebaran, the other of the royal stars. And last but not least, Regulus in Leo will rise just before the sun. The Milky Way, Scorpius and Orion. The bulk of the Milky Way is on the western horizon. The galactic center slowly going down is sinking behind the sun. The Southern Cross, which is also visually in the Milky Way, is doing the same thing. It's doing its big descent as it dives towards the horizon, getting lower and lower each evening throughout the month, as seen after sunset. It is circumpolar, so it never disappears from the southern sky, but it means the lovely clusters and nebulae that you would have enjoyed in autumn and winter have long gone from being in a favorable viewing position. They now compete with the horizon. The other patch of the Milky Way that remains in a very good position for viewing is the area around Sagittarius and Scorpius with many globular clusters and nebulae, which are distant celestial clouds to look at. Some of Sam's highlights that he wrote down are bright nebulae such M16, the Eagle Nebula, Lagoon Nebula and what he thinks is the very photogenic Triffid Nebula. Ptolemy's cluster is a great naked eye object that is visible between the two constellations. The South Circumpolar Zone, just after sunset, the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Southern Cross are close to the horizon where the Small Magellanic Cloud is in a good position to observe. And if you want to go hunting for comets in the southern sky, you might be able to spot 289P Blanpain. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. It starts the month at 10.2 magnitude, so not very bright, but by the end of the month it will be 8.8 .8 and quite close to the Helix Nebula. Another one worth having a look for is C2018W2 Africano, which starts the month at its brightest at the Aquarius end of Pisces. On Friday, the 4th of October, this comet will get about a degree from Neptune, so a great opportunity to get a photo of both these icy cold objects. The comet would be at magnitude 10 and Neptune would be at magnitude 7.8. Another interesting comet that we might catch a glimpse of is P2008Y12 Soho. That's quite a long name. This one will be approaching closer and closer to the Sun and it can be found not far from Venus. So you'll need a fantastic horizon from here from Wellington and great conditions. It will brighten significantly as it gets near the Sun, but that will also make it impossible to see. The best time to see it will be at the beginning of October when the magnitude is 4.4, about 4 degrees to the right of uh, Mercury and 21 degrees from the Sun so it should be high enough above the horizon and dark enough. The moon is full on October the 14th and we have a new moon on October the 28th. 
At 11 p.m. on 17th of October, the Moon gets very close to Pluto, although at magnitude 14.4, Pluto will be well and truly overshadowed by the minus 10 magnitude Moon, kind of almost um, like an occultation that you wouldn't be able to see easily anyway. On the 5th of October is the International Observe the Moon Night, so get out there with your telescopes, binoculars or just with your eyes and take a moment to appreciate the celestial body that gives our planet a handy tilt, tides and a day that's 24 hours long. Without the moon, we may not have been able to climb out of the primordial soup at all. Mercury, it's a good time to see Mercury at the start of the month, with it being a good 20 degrees from the sun. Mercury should be easy to spot if you have a good western horizon, just look for Venus after sunset, almost on the horizon and then the next brightest slightly orange thing above it is Mercury. Jupiter is as always amazing to view, though it's starting to get a bit further away from us as compared to a month ago. At the start of the month, the gas giant will take up to 36 art seconds of your eyepiece, but by the end of the month, this will have reduced to just a bit more than 33 art seconds. Jupiter sets about 1.23 am at the start of the month, and by the end, it is setting at 11.48 pm. You will be able to see Europa across the planet's disk on the 3rd in the early evening as soon as the sun goes down, followed by Io again and around 9 pm. The next good one to watch is on the 10th at 7.15 pm when Europa and then shortly followed by Io pass in front of Jupiter. Another one of these paired moons crossing starts at 10 pm on the evening of the 18th as well, so there are plenty of opportunities to catch an eclipse on Jupiter this month. Saturn? Over the course of the month, Saturn gets about 100 million kilometers further away but starts in a good position for viewing. Saturn is almost a month behind Jupiter with its setting at 1.20 am at the end of the month and setting at the start of the month at 3.10 am. Another planet that is worth taking a look at, though don't expect to see much, is Neptune. This cold gas giant is over 4.3 billion kilometers away. It is so far away that it takes light from Neptune 4 hours to get to the Earth. You might be able to make it out the hint of a disk, but an apparent size of 2.4 art seconds you may need to use a bit of imagination, though you will see the bluish hue of Neptune. You can find it by looking for the bright star Phi Aquarii in Aquarius and it's about 40 arc minutes from that star. Uranus is also worth looking at it if you happen to be up quite late as it doesn't rise until about 10 pm at the start of the month and 7.35 pm by the end of the month. This planet is a bit closer at 2.8 billion kilometers and its apparent size is 3.7 arc seconds so you shouldn't need to use too much imagination to see the greenish hue of its disk. Happy Observe the Moon night on the 5th of October and clear skies from us here in Wellington. Very special thanks to Sam for writing the section on the solar system and very many thanks as usual to Rian Sheehan for allowing us to use his amazing music.
Thanks for that, Heratina and Sam. Now on to the feedback. Okay, before we get into the feedback, we recently became aware of an issue with our website's email. Unfortunately, if you've emailed us in the last three months or so, we haven't got it. The issue's been fixed, and the form seems to work again, so if you sent in feedback and it didn't get a response, please feel free to send it again. So we have an email from Brendan, who said, Just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy the Jodcast each month. Always look forward to the new episodes appearing. Greetings from New South Wales, Australia. So we have some news from Flickr as well this week. Mary McIntyre has recently posted her 100th image of star trails on our Flickr, showing off some of the eye-catching circumpolar trails. So if you have any kind of interest in that, uh, do give it a look. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com forward slash groups forward slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send this post. Uh, the address is on the website. Thanks to Sadie Jones for the interview. The editors were George Bendo, Alex Clark, Deepika Venikatu, and Tom Scrag. The producer was Fiona Porter. Until next time, Jordan. Jordan.